Software Engineering Radio Episode 14, Interview with Ted York. Ted, welcome to uh, Software Engineering Radio. Um, today we want to talk about uh, .NET and uh, C Sharp 3.0 and in general .NET language evolution. Um, but before we start, I guess you'd like to uh, introduce yourself a little bit so that the listeners know who they're listening to. Well, um, my name is Ted Nord, and um, as we say here in the States, I'm a big geek. Um, I play with uh, you know, both Java and .NET platforms, and I've got a couple of books out. Um, Effective Enterprise Java came out, uh, I guess, a year and a half ago now. Gosh, how time flies. <laughs> and uh, I did, I co-authored C Sharp in a Nutshell and SSCLI Essentials, which is also known as the Rotor Book. Mm -hmm. And I've got uh, a couple more that I'm working on now that uh, when we get closer to publication, I'll probably make some uh, some sort of formal announcement about, but there are a couple of .NET-related books. I just keep bouncing back and forth between the two platforms. It's kind of fun. Yeah, that's interesting. Not, not, not too many people do that, actually. So you're probably in a good position to compare the two platforms. So, so can you say something, you know, I mean, not that X is better than Y, but maybe... I prefer to use X for task such and such, or, and I use .NET for this and that. So do you have any preferences there? Well, you know, in a lot of respects, the two really are kind of... You know, the phrase I like to use when I'm, when I'm asked this question at conferences, the phrase I like to use is that they, they are really evil twin brothers. <laughs> you know, I mean, if you look at all the, 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 the myths and fairy tales and so forth, whenever you have, you know, twin brothers... You know, each one believes the other one is evil, and each you know they're basically fighting over who gets to inherit the kingdom when the king dies. And in this case, of course, the king is Cobalt. Mm -hmm. And um, they really are, you know, in many respects, um, they really are twin brothers. You know, they're they're genetically almost identical. They mm -hmm. really have a lot of the the, the same basic. Um, same basic parts. They're they're made very very similar to one another, and as a result, you can really use either one to accomplish any particular task. What's really different about them is sort of the culture that surrounds them, you yeah. know? And, and in some cases, the culture that birthed them, but more often than not, the culture that surrounds them. You know, so for example, I mean, this shouldn't come as a great surprise to anybody. If I want to build something that's very specific to the Windows platform, .NET tends to be the better platform to do it with. If I want to build something that runs cross-platform, Java turns out to be the better platform to use. I mean, that, that should not surprise anybody. Um, but there ha there, there's some interesting sort of uh, subtitles that go along with that, which say, you know, .NET held as a important value that you'd be able to reach into the underlying platform and access things that are below the managed environment. You know, like, so .NET has a very, very good platform interop story, platform invocation story. Java, on the other hand, tries very hard to hide the underlying platform. And so Java suggests that everything you want to do should be in Java. And as a result, you get into situations like the distinction between Swing, 
where Java tries to do all of the painting and all of the event handling logic for you, and WinForms, which says, no, we want to basically shell out to you know Win, uh, User32 and GDI and let the operating system handle all that stuff, which is kind of what IBM has been able to do with SWT. Yeah. You know, so you get you get some really interesting sort of technological dis, you know discussions there. The one thing that I do see, you know, that is a very common distinction, and I won't say that that I necessarily prefer one platform over the other, the other for any one thing, but one area that you do see is, you know, Java has a tendency to drive a lot of the the back end enterprise traffic, a lot of J2EE going out there in the world, and .NET has a tendency to do a lot of the front-end um, user interface type stuff. And so as a result, you get a lot of people who are saying, let's do a WinForms front-end talking to a J2E back-end. And in a lot of respects, that really works out really, really well because you're sort of leveraging each platform for what its you know, cultural strengths turns out to be. One thing that, that I've heard a couple of times is that specifically in the in the embedded world, like not, not deep embedded, but this portable... PDA thing, phone thing, that the compact framework seems to be a bit more feature-rich than J2ME, so that, that, that's something that I heard before. Yeah, see, I don't know much about the compact space, so I, yeah. couldn't, really, I couldn't really say a lot you know, to either side. I do know that um, you know, for a long time, it really seemed like neither one was doing a great <laughs> job. Of, yes. of capturing that market, and it may be you know now that uh, you know Pocket PC is running on the uh, the trio, you know that may signal a significant shift in the balance yes. of power between the two. But I you know I've known a couple of people who have tried to reach or tried to write um, you know let's let's call them portable device programs who really didn't like either platform. You know they did they I don't know anybody who's used both, but I've talked with people who do compact framework who've said. Oh, I really don't like Compact Framework. It's such a pain in the ass. Mm -hmm. And I know people who've used J2ME who yes. said exactly <laughs> the same thing. Yeah. So you know, I don't know if that's just grass is greener on the other side, or if that's you know, actual you know, we the both of these platforms need a lot of work yet. I I don't know. I don't know. So after looking at the two platforms, let's maybe before we go into details about C Sharp compared to languages a little bit. One thing that I kind of always think is that C-sharp has a faster pace with regards to language evolution. There are more interesting new features. So what do you think about the current state, like if you compare C-sharp 2 with, I don't know, Java 5? Um, any opinion well, on that? You know, it's interesting because on the one hand, you know, you have Microsoft who owns this, the, the C-sharp space, right? I mean, Microsoft has done a, bit, a very good job of putting C# -sharp, the language definition into the public domain. It is a, you know, it is an established standard that is owned through ECMA and ISO. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, but on the other hand, clearly the C# -sharp language is being defined by Anders Halsberg. And so if Anders decides that he wants a new feature in the C# -sharp language, <laughs> You know, it will happen. There's really no question about that. Um, and in some respects, the standardization efforts are almost an afterthought. You know, you really mm -hmm. don't see, like what you see in the Java space, where you have sort of a community-based effort around defining the language. But at the same time, 
you know, the community-based approach is not always the greatest one as well because what you end up with sometimes is, you know, too many cooks running around inside this space um, trying to to define, trying to change, trying to modify, etc. the language. I know I've been a part of several Java community process expert groups, including one, the annotations facility that was part of Java 5. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, you know, what you get is just good old-fashioned committee um, schizophrenia. You know, you've got 15 people on a committee, and so you have 15 slightly different ideas, or in some yeah. cases, radically different ideas, as to what exactly you should do. And that, that, that becomes, I think, something of an impediment to progress. But at the same time, you know, this is where you get into some of the cultural differences. If Sun were to turn around and say, we're just going to define what the next version of Java would be like, and the rest of you, you don't like it, you can just go take your ball and play someplace else, yeah. the Java community will crucify them. Yeah. Microsoft does that, and the Microsoft community says, okay, cool, Microsoft is, is innovating, Microsoft is going off and doing new things. So there's this culture in the Java space that I think inherited from, you know, the same culture in, in the Unix space. Mm-hmm. It says, hey, you know, no one vendor should control this process. And as a result, innovation has a tendency to be a little bit slower. That said, Java 5 was the most innovative language changes to the Java platform since forever, since JDK 1.1, quite yeah. frankly. So I think Sun is not afraid, in some cases, to go off and do things to the language. They they have a tremendous concern over backwards compatibility, you know, because the platform is ten years old at this point. You know that that you you go back and look at the changes between C plus plus between you know 1989 and 1999. <laughs> you know there's 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 a point at which you say I really can't radically innovate anymore. Yes. And Microsoft is approaching that point, too. You know, they're getting to a point where they're going to have to slow down a little bit on some of the radical innovation. Otherwise, they're going to piss off a lot of the early .NET programmers who are going to say, this isn't quite what I had in mind when I signed up for this gig. But, you know, for the moment, Microsoft is a little bit more of a free reign than Sun does. And it looks like Microsoft is willing to explore that and play with that and, you know, take it to the nth degree which Sun can't or won't, and, and I'll leave that at that. Okay, then uh, let's look at those some of those new features that are upcoming in, in .NET or c Sharp 3.0. Actually, I heard about some of the language features we're going to talk about in a moment. Are they actually C-sharp specific, or are they applicable for all those other .NET languages like VB.NET also? In the case of talking about C-sharp 3.0 slash link, they are all of them language. They, they, I, I, when, I, when, when Link first came out, um, I wrote a uh, blog entry sort of explaining all of the features and, and showing how they, what, what, what sort of IL they turned into. And so the thing that, that I called it at the time, which a couple of people sort of took me to task for, but I stand by, is that all of the features in C-sharp 3.0 are basically syntactic sugar. Mm-hmm. It, all they're really doing is they are just saving you as the author of the class or the author of the code. They're just saving you from having to type a little bit more. And in some cases, they're saving you from typing a lot. Yep. But there's no structural changes to the CLR that that they had to do for, for Project Link. 
Um, and as a result, the, the, the features look a little bit different between C-sharp 3.0 and VB9. Mm -hmm. So these, these are all compiler tricks, basically. Okay. So since you already mentioned Link, which is actually spelled L-I-N-Q, in case people don't know, um, why don't you explain what, what this is all about? Well, Link is, it stands for Language Integrated Query. And effectively, it's, <clears throat> it's an attempt by Microsoft, by, by folks within the Microsoft C-sharp uh, compiler community, to say, look, you know, we do a tremendous amount of work with data. You know, whether it's relational data or hierarchical data, a la XML, we do a tremendous amount of work with data. So what they want to do is they want to make C-sharp as a language friendlier to working with data. So what, you know, at, at the surface level, what it looks like is they've embedded SQL into language. Well, that's not exactly true. What they've done is they've embedded a number of features at the language level that they then make use of in order to make it easier to insert, extract, and examine relational data and hierarchical data. Most of the features you know, that we're going to talk about in terms of C-sharp 3, most of them support the relational data angle. The hierarchical data angle turns out not to be too difficult to do using the existing facilities of the language. Um, most of what we're going to be talking about will be to support the relational aspects. But regardless, the point of Link is to say, you work with data. If you are a practicing C-sharp programmer, you work with data. And right now, taking library-based approaches like ADO.net or XML Reader is just awkward. There's no compile time safety. You're bridging across type systems. There's uh, you know, there's a tremendous amount of code that you, the programmer, have to write in order to be able to work with this, even if you use some of the baked-in facilities like Dataset. It's just too much work, and we should be able to support this not just against external relational data, but we should be able to, for example, if I've got a, you know, if I've got a collection of objects, excuse me, a collection of objects in memory, mm -hmm. I should be able to issue a relational-like query using all the mm -hmm. you know, predicate calculus and so forth against that collection to make it easy to find elements within that collection. There should be no um, linguistic difference between querying a collection and querying a database, querying a table. So, so if we compare a link with things like, for example, Hibernate, where you specify the query inside a string and then pass it down to the database, or even SQLJ, where you have SQL embedded in the language, using a preprocessor, how, how, how does Link compare? Can you, can you give our listeners a flavor of how this will feel, taste, look like? Well, Link is going to be very different from Hibernate in the sense that at its basic levels, Link is not really an object relational mapping layer. Um, some of the guys who worked on Link, uh, like uh, Luca... I'm probably going to mispronounce his name, but it's Luca Bolognese or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um... You know, a lot of that work came out of the work they did around the ORM stuff that Microsoft was working on, um, mm -hmm. object spaces. So a lot of those guys came over to work on Link because it was sort of related to, you know, what an ORM does. But at the end of the day, Link is not really an ORM. And there's an important distinction there because an object relational mapper says, I will take the relational 
data. I will take the rectangles, as Eric Meyer once put it. I will take those and I will pound them into round shape, you know, circles being the common way that we represent objects pictographically. We will pound them into round shapes so that you can just work with objects. And that's basically what Hibernate does. Hibernate says, you just go ahead and walk up to the Hibernate session and say that you want to fetch a particular person object out of the database. And I will go ahead and create the SQL query for you. And I will execute the query. And I will interpret the results and, and shove it into a person object and hand it back to you. And there's a tremendous amount of impedance mismatch that an ORM has to overcome in order to maintain that facade, in order to maintain that object's first facade. SQL J tried to take sort of the opposite approach. SQL J said, we are going to create an embedded SQL uh, situation where we will take your SQL statements that you, you will write in a Java, you know, what, what they called a SQL J file. We will extract your SQL statements and we will go ahead and translate that code into making the equivalent of ADO.NET in Java was called JDBC. So we'll go ahead and make JDBC calls and we'll do, you know, we'll generate all the X number of code necessary to do that relational query, extract that data, and pound it into, you know, whatever, in the, in the case of JDBC, into a result set that you want to try and extract it from there. The thing that Link does differently is that it's not so much trying to say, I want to hide the relational database from you behind a, you know, object's first perspective, which is what Hibernate and other ORMs do. And it's not so much trying to pre-process as it is really, in many respects, trying to integrate, hence the name, um, relational syntax, relational theory as part of the platform. So that, again, one of the things you can do with Link that you cannot do with either Hibernate or with, um, with uh, SQLJ is you could do a relational query across an in-memory collection. Again, so if I have a, a, uh, a list of T, right, if I have a list of person objects, I can issue a relational-like query across that list of person types to find all of the persons in that list where first name equals Marcus. Mm -hmm. Right, and that's something that Hibernate cannot do, that not easily at least, unless you have some sort of JDBC driver that knows yeah. how to do in-memory query. In-memory database, but that's yeah. a trick. <laughs> yeah, well, and and you know there is no such thing today that operates off of a standard Java collection class. Yeah. Um, in SQL J, you know, again, you'd have to have a JDBC driver, and again, that only you know that only handles the situations where you have the appropriate driver. It's not a sort of universal solution, which, you know, quite frankly, this is this is very powerful, right? The um, some of the features in Link are designed to work off of the base types that we work with every day in the uh, .NET base class library. So, for example, anything that hands back an I enumerable, right, can be used as part. You know, you can do relational like predicates across. So I can do, you know, selects and groups and order buys and so forth. Anything that, that hands back an I enumerable, which is very, very powerful. Relational databases do quite a bit of uh, optimization if you pass them a 
an SQL query. How is this handled in Link? Is, is the optimization still done in the persistent store in case there is one underlying the query or does Link do this somehow in memory or, or how do you handle big data sets? Is there any kind of lazy initialization or something? Well, what Link does, and, and when we get into some of the features, you know, it, all of these features sort of stack on top of one another to sort of explain how Link will do this. But Link does not do um, what some people sort of looked at when, when they hear about this, is they sort of get this queasy feeling in their stomach that says, oh my god, Link <laughs> is going to go off and pull the entire contents of the table across the wire and then do the filtration on my side inside the CLR. And that's Wait. not the case. And obviously, nobody would seriously expect that Microsoft proposes such an approach. So there must be something else. Question is just how. Well, what they do is using um, extension methods in C sharp three, the actual the actual implementation of how the the query of how the the filtration and so forth will carry out is actually deferred against what you're going up against. So, for example, if you do this against a um, if you do this against an in-memory collection, right? If you do this against a list of T, mm -hmm. then the the extension methods that support in-memory query will kick in. If, however, you do this against a relational database, if you do this against a database object that you have opened, you know, you've opened a connection against Northwind or whatnot, then a different set of extension methods kick in and those extension methods actually use um, expression trees. So what they do is they look at your, your literally they look at your source. This is partly what, you know, this is, this is what the C-sharp compiler does yeah. for you. Yeah. Is it looks at your source and it builds an expression tree and hands that expression tree to the database-driven extension method who then feeds that across the wire to SQL Server who then does his usual crop of optimizations against it to retrieve that that stuff efficiently. So in essence what they do is they do the right thing regardless <laughs> of which direction you go with this. Yeah. Um, but you do have symbolic integration, right? So you have a variable of type, I don't know, string, which has which holds a name, and then you can natively write this query passing in the string, and then you get back an object of type, I don't know, collection, which contains the result of the query, right? So and you can use variables from the normal source code inside the, the queries because it's the same thing. They are normal source code. That's correct. That's correct. What, it's 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 interesting, you know, because what they've what they've really done is they've used a lot of the um, the language type system to our benefit, right? Mm -hmm. So that if I'm looking at you know a, a customer object or a person object, I see the actual object type. If and this is one of the areas that ORMs have traditionally fallen down. Right. Um, if it is a customer object, like the full definition of the table, you know, then the ORM is happy. If, however, all I wanted to pull back was just the first name and last name of the customer and nothing else, the ORM has historically said either A, I need to hand you a generically typed thing, right, like JDBC hands back a result set, you know, another ORM might hand back a hash map or something equivalent, or you would have to explicitly define a type, you would have to create your mm -hmm. own sort of customer light type that would be retrieved in the event of this query. And, you know, you would have to go off and create that type and create the mapping and the binding and so forth to that particular type in order to make all that stuff work, in order for the ORM 
to appropriately map between the columns of the database and the type that you're creating. This is actually where, uh, I don't know how much you or your listeners are aware of the hype going on surrounding Ruby and Ruby on Rails. I think they are. <laughs> yeah, well, this is where a lot of the, the Rails hype is really building because Rails has some meta-object facilities within it such that they can do what's, you know, the active record pattern, where I'll just get back an object where the fields correspond directly to the columns, mm -hmm. and I don't have to worry about defining that object up front. And that turns out to be, again, a very, very powerful uh, system. But it's also very, very simplistic. The object maps directly to the table. The thing that Link does is I can go ahead and define these classes up front if I choose. And there is a tool that Link provides that will actually go to the database and generate these types for you. So you can use it, in a sense, as a traditional ORM, sort of a database-driven ORM. Mm -hmm. Or you can hand-write these classes and define their mappings using .NET attributes, as many ORMs do, to define what you want those things to look like when you pull them back. So in a lot of respects, Link, you know, the thing that I like about it so much is it doesn't go off and create unique different rules that you know that that you as the programmer have to you know it's not a new set of rules it's not a different set of rules it's all the same basic facilities that you as a programmer are already familiar with in the c-sharp space but they're able to go off and do things with these rules because of these additional syntactic sugar elements that they've added to make it much easier to go fetch that stuff to go work with that stuff to have statically verified type safety, which a traditional ORM has not been able to guarantee. So two other features are uh, implicitly type variables and anonymous types. Now, if I got that right, what you just, just said, then what you can do is you can query against the database and you get back a collection of objects and the type of this object of which the collection is built, is actually dynamically created and you don't have to declare it. So you can basically write some object result equals and then you get back something that implicitly builds the type that results from the fields you queried against. Is that right? Close, but not quite. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I tried. Oh, and this is, this is a, a very common misunderstanding with respect to Link, is that it's not, it's not done dynamically at runtime. Okay. This is all done by the compiler at compile time. Right. So when I when I write a query, right, when I say select first name, comma last name, comma age from person, or in in C sharp link it's actually from DB select uh, first name, comma last name, comma age, um, they reverse the the from and the select. Yeah. Um, the um, Basically, what the compiler does is he looks at that expression. He looks at that that you know what you're what you're fetching back, and he compares it against what he knows. So, if you're doing it against a database type, if he has information, right? And again, this is compile time. If he has information as to what first name, last name, and age are, he can generate at that point what they call an anonymous type. He can build a type that has no name. Just like in C Sharp 2.0, we have anonymous methods, yep. right? Where you can define the method without a name. He builds that at the time of compilation so that we're not constructing types dynamically on the fly at runtime. Because, you know, that 
that would still take a great deal of time and would be a, you know very very expensive and truth be told we have all the information we need at compile time to mm -hmm. be able to construct this type so why would you want to defer that until runtime if you know 99% of the time this type is going to be known at compile time because you know that first name is a string and last name is a string and age is an int so right. let's just generate a little what we're really doing is we're generating tuple types mm -hmm. right we're generating just basically per, you know bundles of data structs it, it, exactly we're generating structs and <clears throat> part of what they'll do is in this anonymous type definition they will generate these structs to be exactly what you would write you know if you are a quote unquote proper object oriented programmer they will yeah. have properties they will have a constructor um, they make it easy for you to do construction of these anonymous types right what they call object initializers you know and you're getting a fully fledged object it's even got a two string and an equals method you know <laughs> which is nice yeah um, and that's important because we want to be able to compare these things. We want to be able to do equality comparisons on these objects, just as we would for any other object. They're literally coding up what we in the Java space refer to as data transfer objects yep. for you. And you don't have to write a damn thing to do it. Which and, and, and again, it's all it's not it's not duct typing in the traditional sense that you think of duct typing like, you know, Dave Thomas uses in Ruby. Yeah. These are all still statically typed, so you still have to obey the rules of the type verifier and the type system and so forth. Okay. But go ahead. Yeah, and then that's why you said it's all basically syntactic sugar because people that's don't correct. have to write the type of the variable; they just write var, if I know correctly, and then the compiler the compiler infers the type and kind of assigns it automatically. That's correct. That's exactly correct. The 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 compiler is the one who generates this type. The compiler is the one who defines the elements on this type and then right. once the compiler is done it behaves exactly like a type you know that you had written by hand okay okay the uh, other the other feature you mentioned the anonymous variables yeah uh, or I'm sorry the implicitly typed variables Implicit, yeah right again all they're really doing is they're saving you some typing so that yeah. if you say var x equals quote hello the compiler looks at that and says well gosh, I can Probably. infer that that is a string, so I will go ahead and make X a reference to type string. Yep. Right. I mean, again, all you're really doing is you're saving the programmer from some typing at, some, at, at one level, but then at a more important level, what you're really saving the programmer from knowing is the exact type that he's declaring a reference to, which is important when we work with anonymous types, because in an anonymous type, you won't know the type. You wouldn't right. be able to write the name even if you wanted exactly. to. Exactly, right. So right. these two work hand in hand to allow you to be able to say var x equals, right, or basically for each parens var x in the returned query results. Right. Now x is a reference to that anonymous type, and I can say x dot first name, x dot last name, x dot age. And it's fully type checked. It's fully syntax checked. It's it's all the goodness that you want out of a statically typed programming language. But it saves the programmer from having to know a lot of those really extraneous details up front. It's actually quite cool, isn't it? I mean, it, it's really interesting to to have this kind of combination between static statically typed type systems and this kind of. It, it, it looks like dynamic typing. It, it isn't, but it looks like a little bit like it because you don't. Well, have to and that's one of the things. The you know, Eric Meyer, who um, 
who was involved in uh, uh, an earlier research project called C Omega, um, which is still available on MS Research. It runs on the .NET 1.1 platform. They have not updated it for 2.0. But C Omega was an attempt to do a lot of this kinds of stuff. Eric is is basically a researcher at heart, and so you know you talk to him. And you know you, you're clearly speaking with somebody who was grounded in the academic community. Mm -hmm. So be prepared to you know have have your your ears burn a little bit as he talks <laughs> about monads and, mm -hmm. and you know, monadic comprehensions and all of those kinds of stuff. But you know it, it it is amazing. You know I think a lot of times we in the the, the practicing industry have a tendency to look at the academics and say, up, oh, come on, mm -hmm. they're a drain on society. What are they doing that's really practical <laughs> and useful? Yeah. The fact of the matter is that a lot of the work that that you know Eric did with C Omega, I think, directly fed into some of what's going on here. If nothing else, because people like myself, you know, who sort of keep an eye on what's going on, what's going on in the research community, looked at that and said, "Holy crap, that's good stuff. We want that. I want mm -hmm. to see that in my practicing languages." Mm -hmm. And you know some of that is really spilling over into the Java community as well. It's unfortunate that Sun does not have the same, the same degree of, of language friendliness as Microsoft does over the CLR. Before you mentioned uh, extension methods as one of the implementation tricks for for Link, can you maybe elaborate two or three sentences on that one? An extension method, syntactically, and, and by the way, if people want to see, you know, sort of source code examples and so forth, again, I'll, I'll point them to my blog, uh, blogs, B-L-O-G-S, dot tedneward, dot com. Um, and I'll, I'll and put a link into the show notes. Yeah, 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 yeah. you'll see it. It's it's fairly easy to, to spot off the blog. Yeah. But I go through the syntax and also what the generated IL looks like. So um, when you write an extension method, you're basically creating a static method off of a static class that takes as its first parameter what is effectively a this pointer. Mm -hmm. The reason, and then they actually use that keyword, right? You say object this, and then you give it the name. So we're reusing the this keyword. Mm -hmm. What this does is this tells the compiler that whenever you bring in that namespace, whenever you say using utilities, if that's the namespace that your extension method is declared in, your extension class, mm -hmm. what this means now is that The, all of the extension methods off of all of the classes in that namespace are accessible to you regardless of the class that you're on. So that now when you go to, you know, in this C-sharp 3 preview, when you, you know, when you create an instance of list type T, right, and you say, you know, uh, persons dot, IntelliSets kicks in, and all of a sudden you see a huge number of methods that are not part of the list of T class. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. These are extension methods that were brought in because you did using system.data, or system, I'm sorry, system.query, not system.data. Mm -hmm. That's the namespace in which all of the link stuff lives. So what effectively happens is the compiler turns around. What looks to you like, you know, persons.select, and you pass in some, you know, some lambda expression. What that compiler turns that into is system.query. I forget the name of the class. I think it's uh, 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 search or something mm -hmm. along those lines. Dot select parens the list comma and then your lambda expression. Mm -hmm. So effectively, just as you as a programmer would write a static class with a bunch of utility methods on it and then call into that static class 
passing in the object instance you want to pass, the compiler is doing that for you now. The compiler is literally generating that code for you, but it looks to you like it is a it is a it is an instance method in the traditional fashion, and it behaves like an instance method because you get a this pointer. And you have polymorphism. Yes, you do. Cool. You can mm -hmm. actually have multiple extension methods, and and it, and it depends on the the this parameter yep. in yep. the extension method, right? Whichever is the best match will be used. So it's basically a way to add additional methods to existing classes without Correct. having to touch the the, the the class definition. Correct. In in cool. in the in some of the linguistic space, they refer to these as open classes, right. where yep. you can actually add. Uh, more functionality to a class that's already been defined. Which is another yes. feature that the Ruby folks tend to hype about. Exactly. And it is a powerful feature, but it's yes. also a dangerous one because you don't necessarily, there's no point at which in Ruby the class gets closed. Mm -hmm. you know, so there's, there's some danger where, <laughs> you know, okay, anybody can start adding methods to yep. classes and more importantly, changing the definition of some of those classes. And an extension method cannot change the definition of an right. existing instance method. It, it is always a, um, a weaker <laughs> preference to an existing method of the same name. So I ah, can't okay. change the definition of the two-string method, for example, okay. on object because it's already there. But I can add a version of two-string that takes a parameter, right, that I could then, you know, that it gets implicitly added to every object in the system, quote-unquote. Something that you also also mentioned, uh, I don't know, two minutes ago, was lambda expressions. Is are they also inside uh, C sharp now? Well, the lambdas, if you're if you're a uh, if you're a closet Lisp programmer and you're used to lambda expressions, you will be disappointed by what we've got inside of C sharp uh, C sharp three. But at the same time, if you've never used lambda expressions before, you will you will be tickled. Because realistically speaking, a lambda is just an easier way to write an anonymous method. It's a, right. it's, a it's a more terse syntax. Yep. And as a matter of fact, you know, personally, not being a closet Lisp programmer, uh, not even being an out of the closet Lisp programmer, <laughs> um, you know, I I do not I do not think in the lambda expression syntax. There are some people who do, and you know, I wish those people well in their recovery, but. Um, <laughs> You know, I do not, and as a result, the lambda expression syntax for me is somewhat awkward and difficult to to understand. Um, but you know, for programmers out there who do not want to grok the lambda expression syntax, it's just another way for writing an anonymous method. But, as a matter of fact, that's exactly what the compiler turns it into. Yeah. The, the cool thing is that you can then use those higher order functions where you basically then say you have um, a collection and you can say collect and then you pass in such a lambda expression or, or select or map or anything, which, which again gives you a much terser syntax compared to iterating over all that stuff. Well, and, and the thing is you could use the same thing with an anonymous delegate, right, True. or with, a, with an existing delegate, okay. right, where yeah. I can say, you know, new delegate type, You know, so it would be like, you know, new, I don't know what the, the, the type would be in link. But it would be, you know, I can just literally pass, you know, the method name, right, so, and, and, and he's happy with it. So we can so, still do a lot of the higher order function stuff. It's right. just we're not doing it, you know, the, the, the lambda syntax doesn't have to be used to do it. So what you're saying is that the important feature is not the lambda expression, but rather the fact that you can have typed function pointers, which you can pass around and which you can pass into such uh, higher order functions. Right, and and that is something that we've had from the beginning, 
quite okay. frankly. And that is one of those those elements of C sharp that I have always favored mm-hmm. over Java, simply because you know that that turns out to be very powerful. the The use of delegates was an important first step. Right, defining the delegate type was an important first step. Right. Then in two point they introduced the anonymous delegate type. Now in three we shorten the syntax down to make it a lambda expression. Mm-hmm. You know, and suddenly we can start stringing these types, these these things together, and using them in very powerful ways. You know, mm-hmm. to create this this higher order functionality, uh, functional capabilities that you know, uh, object oriented languages have never really had. I mean, we could always pass function pointers around in C but the syntax was terrible, and the functions <laughs> had to be defined in the traditional sense. Yep. Java, we could hand around instances of the reflection method class, but again, you know, to try and take one of those guys, to use one of those guys, you yeah. had to go through a tremendous amount of work in the java.lang.reflect space to be able to get the method. The delegate was a very, very powerful thing that they introduced in C Sharp, and for years I have ranted and raved about trying to get something equivalent to it in Java, and they've just, you know, Nobody's been listening, or nobody really understood why this was important. Although I heard today in some other other podcast that uh, they're thinking about uh, putting method references into Dolphin, which is Java Seven or something. So maybe they've listened. Well, and and I certainly I certainly hope they have. You know, they they added a new bytecode in Java, Invoke Dynamic, yep. to support the dynamic invocation of methods to yep. be able to support some of these more loosely typed. Uh, loosely bound languages on the platform, and that's a good that's a good step. Right. And I I hope that they are in fact you know actively considering you know that kind of innovation for the Java platform because frankly Java needs it if they are to you know keep up you know keep up with the Joneses uh, in terms of what Microsoft is doing in .NET. At the same time, I hope that if they make those kinds of those those kinds of innovative changes. They do so based on sound philosophical principles and not just let's make Java into the next 4GL. Right. Because that that has a tendency to collapse under its own weight. Yeah. It seems like the .NET platform and also Microsoft in that respect is much more open to language diversity on the .NET platform compared to Sun and the Java platform. What's your impression there? Reading your blog, I, I come across languages like F-Sharp or Scala, so, so it seems like there is a lot of language innovation going on on the .NET platform. Well, Scala actually, interestingly enough, Scala is a language that was originally designed for the Java platform. Ah. And Martin Odersky, who was one of the guys who was involved with the GJ effort, which was an early implementation of generics for Java, yeah. Yeah. on which Java's actual generic implementation was based, um, he's responsible for... You know what's going on in in Scala. He's he's part of the the group uh, at the Swiss University that's working on it. So so Scala is arguably more for the JVM than it is for the CLR. And quite frankly, there's a tremendous amount of diversity in terms of languages for the Java platform. As a matter of fact, if you Google for that exact phrase, languages for Java VM, mm-hmm. you will run across a page that's maintained by I believe his name is Patrick Volkerding. Mm-hmm. Um, that he just tracks all of the different languages that can compile or are interpreted on the Java Virtual Machine. And you will run across a, 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 just a fascinating list of, of languages and, 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 and efforts and 
you know, one of the early efforts dating back as far as 1997 was an effort, a language called Pizza, P-I-Z-Z-A, <laughs> that, um, again, Martin Odersky and Gilad Braca and a couple other guys who were then tapped for GJ were a part of, and Pizza is actually a very interesting um, combination of parametric polymorphism, what we refer to as generics, yep. and some higher-order functionality, higher-order function functionality, uh, similar to what you see with like lambda expressions and so forth, and this was as far back as JDK 1.1. So you know, certainly there has been this sort of um, uh, grassroots effort in the Java space to define and and use languages on the Java platform. The big difference, and this is the thing that frustrates me a great deal about Sun, the big difference is that Microsoft has encouraged this multilinguistic perspective. They they have gone off and made it easy. At one point they even had a guy whose job was to, you know, if you wanted to bring a language to the .NET platform, uh, Brad Merrill would come out to your company or come out to your organization and say, here are the resources, tell us what you're running into, how can we make your experience a better one? Mm -hmm. And, you know, he had not just official blessing, but I mean, he was paid to do this. Mm -hmm. This was his job was to go out and evangelize the CLR as a platform for your favorite programming language. And that, I mean, that creates a culture of, you know, of not just experimentation, but of, you know, gratification. People are like, wow, I can actually go off and do this thing and feel like I will be recognized, rewarded, whatever. And as a result, you know, in given its relatively short lifetime thus far, there are a tremendous number of languages for the .NET platform. And it seems like every time somebody comes out with a language for the .NET platform, somebody turns around and comes out with an equivalent or similar language <laughs> for the Java platform. Yep. There's, there's a tremendous amount of innovation going on. I believe, personally, that the next five years will see a real renaissance in language design. And I think what we're going to see is that, you know, the, the real positive effect of Ruby and Ruby on Rails will not be necessarily to convince us all to go off and use the Ruby platform, but to look at the Ruby language and say, why exactly are people so productive with that platform? Right. And what can we do to, you know, to take advantage of it? What can we do to leverage that for the existing platforms that companies have put millions, if not billions, of dollars of investment into? Yep. That, I think, will be the, the, the big win. Yes, I, I agree completely. So, so... Um to, to conclude this topic on, on, on Ruby and, and functional languages and higher order and meta object protocols, um, after the discussion before and after learning that most of that kind of magic stuff is done by the compiler, then I guess you don't have a real meta object protocol in C Sharp 3.0. And what you also not have is probably something like a method not found method, you know, like a default method that's called in case another method that you invoke. Right. can't be found because you, you can't do that because you still do it statically. You just don't have to write the type. That is correct. That is something that we do not have in the, the C-sharp 3 space in the CLR itself. Again, because these are right. statically typed languages. Um, you know. Now, again, let's be really careful here. There is nothing that prevents a particular language from implementing that kind of functionality on top of itself. Right. Right. So if, if 
there are people who are working on a Ruby.net uh, implementation. Mm -hmm. uh, there are people who are working on a JRuby implementation, right. Right, Ruby for the JVM, because the JVM has the same basic limitation. Right. Um, and for that particular language, right, as you're interpreting the the uh, the calls, if you're doing it in an interpretive style or whatnot, certainly you could you could basically you know encode a loop, if you will, that I will reflectively search for this method, and if it's not there, reflectively search for a missing method method and call that method, which is exactly what Ruby does, which is right. how we get Active Record and all that good stuff. Yep. We could do that, but it would be limited to that particular language, and it would clearly not be CLS compliant. It, it would mean that you have an interpreter running on top of the CLR or, or the JVM, and it would not be native CLR or JVM by well, it wouldn't have to be an interpreter, and this is where I'm going to go next. There are actually a couple of hybrid approaches we could take whereby, for example, and this is where I come back to Eric Meyer, one of the phrases that he's using, and he wrote a paper about this not too long ago for Oopsla, where he says, statically typed where we can be, dynamically typed where we have to be, mm -hmm. which is a very, very intriguing idea, and it stems from the basic fact that Visual Basic is the only programming language in the world that can switch between early bound and late bound with basically three keywords, right? Mm -hmm. Option explicit on or option explicit off, option strict on or option strict off. That is actually really, really powerful. It means I can flip between reflective invocation of methods and early bound invocation of methods yeah. within the same program. This is, this is really fascinating because now what it means is if I can look at the object type and determine that the method that I want to call is there, then I can just go ahead and encode an early bound method call right there. Mm -hmm. If I'm looking, however, at an object and the method is not present, I could, as a compiler, emit the necessary calls to do a reflective lookup, and if that reflective lookup fails, turn around and call a missing method right. method which either is an extension method, you know, to use the C-sharp 3 uh, syntax, yeah. or calls into something, you know, looks for a missing method on that type itself, right? Something that you could maybe have inheriting from your language's base class that inherits from object or whatever, right? Yeah. However you yeah. wanted to be able to encode that missing yeah. method, you could do that. So we have, we have some interesting places where we could do stuff like this. And see, this is why I think you know, people keep talking about statically typed and dynamically typed languages as if there is no continuum between them. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of interesting compiler tricks that we can play, right? right. You know, just speaking practically, that um, we have just begun to sort of scratch the surface of. Yeah. So I think we could get a, 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 a Ruby-like missing method functionality without giving up the statically typed platform that we're used to. And that, I mean, that gets me just, you know, all giggly inside because that, <laughs> I mean, that gives us, you know, you could really build, you know, a, a Ruby-like functionality on top of the JVM or on top of the CLR. So you get all that, you know, goodness in terms of productivity without losing the goodness in terms of static typing. Yeah, so you, you could have instead of a class object, you could have a class weak object, and if you inherit from that one, you could do all the invocations, for example, dynamically. That would be really cool. It, it, would, it, would even, it wouldn't even have to be a base class-driven scenario. It could literally be based on how the compiler generated the code. So mm -hmm. you've got class object, right? You've got, a, you know, object O equals return value from some method, and you call O dot foobar, parens, parens. 
my compiler could go ahead and say, all right, the object type definition does not have a method call for foobar, so here's where I make the transition to be dynamically typed. I will go ahead and embed the code to reflectively look for the method call uh, foobar and attempt to invoke it. And if that's not there, then reflectively yep. look for the method called missing method. And if that's not there, all right, throw a, throw a runtime exception. Yeah, give up. <laughs> okay, um, do you want to say two or three words about F-sharp? Um, you know, F-sharp is, is one of an emerging class of functional object hybrid languages. You know, so functional languages have the, the interesting property that they attempt to not produce side effects, mm -hmm. right? So when you um, when you make a a F sharp uh, when you make a method call quote unquote when you when you call a function, the idea is that there will be no there there's no mutable state there's no mm -hmm. changes it's it's functional in the mathematical sense rather than the sense that we think about from a procedural perspective. Yep. Um, very similar to an older again sort of academic slash research language called OCaml which mm -hmm. is a variation off of the pure functional language called ML. Um, long story short, one of the reasons why functional languages are interesting is because they encourage um, lack of side effects, or perhaps I should say they discourage side effects. You know, For example, when we call system.console.writeline, the functional guys say that method doesn't do anything because it doesn't return a value, yep. but it has the side effect of printing to the console. Right, and they recognize that you know certain side effects are necessary and important in programming, like printing to the console. What the functional guys though encourage is that you don't have side effects. That if you modify an object, quote unquote, you're not modifying the object. You get a new copy of the object with your modifications in it, which, if you think about it, is exactly how System.String behaves. Yep. What this does for us, in a lot of ways, is it helps reduce the surface area of the code that we have to make thread safe. Mm -hmm. It's been sort of a long-standing rule in the Java space, thanks to Joshua Block's effective Java, that you know if you can build immutable objects, basically build the equivalent of the string class, you don't have to worry about putting synchronization guards around it, yep. which turns out to be very, very hard for most programmers to get synchronization exactly right. And so um, I'll, I'll actually plug uh, a buddy's book here. Brian Getz, a friend of mine from the Java space, has a book coming out, uh, Java Concurrency Theory and Practice, okay. or Java Concurrency in Practice. And because the synchronization models of Java and C Sharp are so similar, I would recommend that C Sharp programmers and VB programmers, if they really want to sort of up their game, <laughs> um, go take a look at this book when it comes out. It'll be from Addison Wesley. It's supposed to come out probably by end of second quarter or third quarter, you know, somewhere in the late late summer time frame, um, I think is when it would hit shelves. You know, and it, it, it turns out, I mean, this is not a thin book by any stretch of the imagination. This is a hard problem to solve, is getting all this concurrency stuff right. And so, you know, functional languages give us an opportunity to say, you know what, for a lot of what we want to do, I really shouldn't have to worry about synchronization if... I take this basic rule of thumb that says I want to prefer immutable objects and immutable state yep. and program in that mind frame as opposed to a mind frame that says, oh, well, I'm going to go and set a property on that particular object 
and therefore change state, and therefore I have to be thread safe, and so forth. F sharp, um, Scala, um, OCaml, they all sort of fall in that same basic classification. And, you know, there's a, there's a sort of a small, you know, cult community growing up around <laughs> F sharp uh, that's coming out. Um, you know, and, and you know, they're very interested in looking at, for example, can I use F sharp to make it much easier, for example, to build a user interface? You know, because a lot of the user interface stuff that we deal with is, in, in many respects, it's somewhat functional in nature from the standpoint that a lot of the things that we want to do with in a user interface are, you know, they are, you could argue that they are side effects, but underneath, a lot of that stuff is basically functional in nature. I do this and this happens, right? This is what's returned to me. So F-sharp is interesting. Uh, again, it's another language coming out from Microsoft Research. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that we will ever see ourselves writing WinForms code in F-sharp on a regular basis. But again, I think what's happening here is that there are people who are experimenting with this stuff. There are people who are looking at the, you know, the, the, the vast amount of knowledge that's been going on in the academic community and saying, hey, you know, there's some goodness there. And let's pull that goodness out yeah. and let's apply it to what we do as a, as a practicing programmer and use it. You know? One of the things that comes out of the F-sharp research that Don Syme has been doing is a toolkit called ABS-IL or Abstract-IL. Mm-hmm. It's basically a functional library for manipulating assemblies on disk. So if you wanted to do some of what you know, some of the aspect guys have been doing, I want to go through and, and take an existing assembly and hack at it and inject uh, trace functionality. You know, kind of like the enterprise instrumentation framework does at runtime, but you don't want to have to include all that code yourself. You just want to say, look, I want to have a little utility that will weave in those tracing calls into the production assembly because I'm having a bug that I can't I can't figure out where it's taking place. This this thing will basically say, all right, let me go at that assembly, let me extract everything, feed it through a sequence of functional calls where you can hook into, this is very much classic visitor pattern, you yep. will hook into it, find the methods that you're interested in, weave in the IL instructions that you want, and emit it back out to disk. Right? That's a very functional thing if you think about it. Yep. And the Absile toolkit makes it very, very easy to do that if you understand how functional programming works and how F Sharp works. So F Sharp becomes a natural platform from which to do that. Um, and that that's powerful. That's some really, really powerful stuff. So again, I, I, I really believe that, you know, as a programming community, you know, the next five years are gonna hold some uh, you know, some incredible innovation that are gonna take place in terms of languages because now we finally have two platforms three if you include the parrot work that's going on in the Perl community that you know we don't have to worry about defining an entire runtime environment about I just have to worry about how do I translate yeah. human looking syntax into machine looking syntax mm-hmm. that turns out to be a much much more approachable problem for most people and this gets us into the realm of Domain specific languages, and you know, that, that's easily another hour or so right. to talk yeah. about. Yeah. Which we can do uh, in another interview, I guess. I think this was very interesting. Anything else you want to say? Because uh, my list is, uh, I've, we've finished going through my questions basically. So, anything else you want to say? 
you know, just the, um, you know, if people are, are interested, uh, part of what I do as a consultant is I specialize in looking at uh, existing research topics and, you know, how they can apply to, you know, practically speaking to, to people's, you know, technical problems. Mm -hmm. So if there are, you know, if, if any of what we've talked about sounds interesting but you're not sure how it would apply to, you know, your company or if it would be a useful fit, Drop me a note. We can talk about uh, you know how I might be able to help folks. You know, like I said, I've got a couple of books coming out in the .NET and XML services space. So you know, if you're interested in .NET, if you're interested in how to use it effectively, keep an eye on my blog. I'll probably be announcing those when they get closer to publication. Mm -hmm. um, and just in general, you know, if people are interested in in programming languages and and interested in some of how this stuff could could make our lives easier in the future. There are a tremendous number of resources out there. You know, there is a .NET Languages page um, similar to the Patrick Volkerding Languages for the Java VM page that I encourage people to sort of go up there and, and take a look at. You know, I, I will I will give props on my uh, on my uh, weblog to the first person who hears this interview and is able to tell me what the OOK Sharp programming language is. <laughs> okay. OOK Sharp programming language. Okay. Um, you know, it, it, it's it, there's 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 suffice it to say that there are certain languages out there that are just silly. Yeah. But you know, the fact of the matter is that you know the the capacity, the the capability, the the potentials of language innovation on these two platforms is just we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg. There's so much more we can do and to make our lives as programmers that much more productive and easier and so forth. Yeah, and it's also a good thing for developers, I guess, to look at languages that use other paradigms than the OO procedural stuff that Java or C Sharp do classically, just to to expand their horizon and learn what those absolutely what they sell. yeah absolutely. Dave Thomas, uh, who's one half of the program, uh, uh, pragmatic programmer, uh, same guy who's pushing Ruby. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he has a basic rule of thumb that I encourage every programmer right. to follow, which is to say, <laughs> one you learn language per year. Every year. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep, and you know, not just you know, if you're a C sharp programmer, you know, don't go off and learn VB and call that your language for the year because yep. VB is you know very fundamentally the same thing as C sharp. Uh, but go off and learn F sharp. Go off and learn JScript. Right. The, it, it, uh, a buddy of mine in the Java space, Glenn Vanderberg, does a presentation called JavaScript. There's a real programming language in there. <laughs> and a lot of the dynamically typed goodness that we like about Ruby and so forth is present within JavaScript and is there in the JScript.net language, which yep. can be compiled. And yep. so there's, you know, there's a tremendous amount of power even in the languages that come out of the box in Visual Studio that people don't know about. But you know, go off and learn F Sharp. Go off and look at Scala. Go off and look at, you know, Prolog. There are some various Prolog.net implementations. Go off and look at Lisp and you know its macro facility and how yeah. powerful it is. Um, even to the point, you know, I know a lot of the folks at Microsoft will not be happy with me for saying this, but I strongly suggest that programmers go look at Aspect J and other aspect-oriented programming languages yeah. because there is a tremendous amount of power there. And you know, decide for yourself whether or not you like what Aspect J does or dislike and why. Yeah. The act of going through and doing that really sort of opens your mind up to different ideas and different possibilities and then you walk onto a project and you run across something that's like hey I remember that I you know that 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 prologue handles this particular situation really really well yeah. so maybe I can do something maybe I won't use a P sharp 
language to do this, but maybe I will write something that's similar to it so that you don't have to go off and reinvent the wheel from scratch. You can work off of established principles and established guidelines and, you know, save yourself hundreds of hours of work. Okay, Ted, thank you very much. I think that was a really cool discussion. And um... Thank you. Thank you for having me. Bye. Bye-bye. This was another episode of Software Engineering Radio. The Software Engineering Radio team wants to thank Henning Pauli for providing the music, as well as Lipson.com for hosting and bandwidth. For more information on the podcast, past episodes and feedback, go to se-radio.net.